Welcome to the audio recording of the reading of the book, The Effects of the Talmud on Judeo-Christianity, by Colonel Jack Moore. Jack Moore passed away in 2003. This book was published in 1992. Freely share this book recording out to any platform you wish and re-upload it on any of your platforms. Do shout me out though and subscribe Free Speech on Fire on BitChute and Telegram. Free Speech on Fire, BitChute and Telegram. Chapter 6. Biblical History of Israel and Judah. In 1931, Elizabeth Dilling, then a girl in her teens, was taken by her parents on a visit to Russia. She saw for herself the appalling scenes of forced labor and squalid living conditions which had been brought about by the socialist system. She heard the public tirades over loudspeakers in the city squares which vilified Jesus Christ and made the sacrament of Holy Communion into a cannibalistic orgy. In the Museum of the Revolution, she was shown a huge world map and as the guide switched on the lights all over the world where communism was then in control. He said, Our world revolution will start with China and end with the United States. At her hotel, Elizabeth talked with a representative of a foreign country who told her about the police terror which had descended on the Russian people and how people were dragged from their homes never to be seen again. Behind the backs of careless guides, Miss Dilling took movies and on her return to the United States began to show them to concerned patriotic Americans everywhere. Articles were written in small local newspapers and the story spread until she was lecturing full-time from coast to coast. She managed to get a copy of her full report on communism, written in 1938 under the sponsorship of Henry Ford Sr., into the hands of Senator Royal Copeland, who then passed it on to Vice President Garner. As a result, Congressman Martin Dyes of Texas directed the Dyes Committee on Un-American Activities to look into this matter. Miss Dilling discovered the hub of Jewish power in America, was in the American Jewish Committee with its Masonic Brotherhood of the B'nai B'rith and its secret police force, its smear and ruin arm. The Anti-Defamation League as we have stated before, is operating illegally on American soil, but with full approval of the United States government. After pushing a reluctant American people into World War II, international Judaism had to crush all opposition by labeling it as fascist, Nazi, or anti-Semitic. By the stigma of these labels, innocent, but informed patriots were ruined by the wrath of well-intentioned but brainwashed Christians. By using these brainwashed people to destroy the patriots, it has furthered their goals of world conquest. 
A series of indictments were brought by the government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt against 30 outspoken anti-communists. One of these anti-communists was Elizabeth Dilling. The indictments began in 1942 and ran through 1944 under the direction of the American Jewish Committee. The 1943 indictment was dismissed, but the one in 1944 had Christian patriots being tried before Jewish Judge Eicher. It was staged without any legal basis whatsoever. Judge Eicher died during the trial, and the case was dismissed by Judge Dolitha Laws with the scathing denunciation that it was a crime to hold people on trial for such a lengthy time without one single bit of evidence against them. Of course, the pro-communist press, which is owned or controlled by Jews, gloated over this staged trial. Goaded on by international Zionist pressure, this brave lady from Chicago went on to write The Plot to Destroy Christianity. From which most of the following information was taken. She also wrote Red Network, a who's who and handbook on radicalism for patriots. The Roosevelt Red Record and its background. And The Octopus, which is an in-depth look into international Jewish power. As you read her powerful and well-documented exposés, you will understand why international Zionism hated her. There is a missing link in Christian understanding regarding this entire subject. The average Christian is totally unaware of a Zionist problem or a Zionist influence in their daily church, political, and social activities. That is proof that the American Jewish Committee has been largely successful in their smear tactics and labeling of those who would dare expose them. This missing link is best expressed when looking into the subject of the Pharisees as found in the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia of 1943. It states, The Jewish religion, as it is today, traces its decent descent without a break through all the centuries from the Pharisees. Their leading ideas and methods found expression in a literature of enormous extent of which a great deal is still in existence. The Talmud, Babylonian, ED. is the largest and most important single piece of that literature. And the study of it is essential for any real understanding of Phariseeism. It would be reasonable for the Christian Bible scholar to recall here that it was against the Pharisees that Jesus Christ leveled his most devastating criticism, calling them hypocrites, poisonous snakes, and even children of the devil. In John 8:44, he indicated that they were spiritual children of Satan, ever willing to do the dirty work of their father. He said that they went to extreme measures to gain a convert, then proceeded to turn them into twofold more of a child of hell than themselves. Matthew 23.15 He said they deliberately nullified the commandments of God by teaching the doctrines of men. Mark 7.13 and Matthew 15.6-9 It is no wonder they wanted to kill him. Everywhere he went during his years on earth, 
we find the Son of God in conflict with the Pharisees, who, the Word says, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety, that is, trickery or deceit, and kill him, Matthew 26, 4. Although Jesus admitted that the Pharisees were the children of Abraham, at least some of them were through Esau and Edom, in John eight thirty seven, he told them that spiritually they were of their father, the devil, John eight forty four. The scriptural believers of Jesus' time were mostly from Galilee, as can be seen from Bible accounts. These people were called Gentiles by the Jews, which equates to non-Jews. The most misunderstood word in scripture is Jew, with Gentile running a close second. The Galileans were hounded and persecuted by the Talmudic Pharisees from the very beginning. In Acts 12.3, we read that King Herod, who was an Edomite slash Jew, because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. He'd already incarcerated and beheaded James, the brother of John. In 1 Thessalonians 2.15, the Apostle Paul, speaking of these Talmudists, said, Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, Christians, brackets, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So you see how the people of that day felt about them. The Babylonian Talmud, according to the top Jewish authorities, is the sole authority of Judaism. Rabbi Louis Finkelstein was chosen in 1937 by the Jewish committees, Kehillahs of the world, as one of the top 120 Jews living at the time. In a two-volume literary work titled The Pharisees, Finkelstein says, Phariseeism became Talmudism. But the spirit of the ancient Pharisees survived, unaltered, when the Jew dot, 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 studies the Talmud, he is actually repeating the arguments used by the Palestinian academies. From Palestine to Babylonia, from Babylonia to North Africa, Italy, Spain, France, and Germany, from these to Poland, Russia, and Eastern Europe, generally ancient Phariseeism ha had wandered. Finkelstein says in his book, The Jews, Their History, Culture, and Religion, Volume 4, page 1332, Any decision regarding the Jewish religion must be based on the Talmud as the final resume of those authorities when they existed. In the November 17, 1950 installment of a best-selling book by the Jewish Jewish author Herman Walk, Walk, we read, The Talmud is to this day the circulating heart's blood of the Jewish religion. As far as I have been able to determine, there was no English translation of the Talmud prior to the Sonsinko edition of 1934 through 48. Why was it that in Europe, when the contents of the Talmud became commonly known, it was burned by the orders of both the Pope and Protestant clergy. It was not because of hatred for the Jews, but because of its contents. Some Jewish apologists, such as David Weber, 
of the Southwest Radio Church, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And Jack Van Impey, a popular Baptist evangelist and writer, says it is because the Jews are God's chosen people, and therefore Satan has a special hatred for them. If this is true, then why did our Savior tell their leaders that they were of their father the devil in John 8.44? No, my Christian friend, you who have been brainwashed by Jewish propaganda in your so-called Judeo-Christian churches of America, the Jews have not been persecuted down through the centuries because they are God's special people, but because of their Talmudic teachings which they have put into operation everywhere they go. They have been hated because the Talmud teaches that only the Pharisees rank as men. All others are animals. The Talmud says the people who are like an ass, slaves who are considered the property of their Jewish masters. It has been because of teachings such as this that the asses in every country have raised up in rebellion and expelled them. Moses, in contrast to Talmudic teaching, was insistent upon one law for the stranger and the homeborn and taught that the stranger must not be oppressed. Exodus 12:49. The Talmud on the other hand teaches the Jew that the stranger in his midst is fair game for the Jews. The word stranger as used in this Exodus passage comes from the Hebrew word ger g e h r and means by implication a foreigner or alien. Was Jesus being fair when he denounced the Pharisees in such scathing terms? It is impossible to know unless you know what the Talmud teaches. Irrefutable exhibits from Jewish authorities show beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Talmud reverses every one of the Ten Commandments of God, the teachings of Moses and the prophets, and enshrines their own obscene opposites Has the whited sepulchers Jesus spoke about in Matthew twenty three twenty seven, which were beautiful on the outside but full of stench and corruption within. Murder of non-Pharisees is permitted by Talmudic law as is theft, sodomy, incest, and rape. The righteousness of grown men violating a little girl under the age of three is one of the favorite topics of discussion in book after book of the Talmud. Dr. Neusner fails to mention this in his defense of the Talmud. The word Babylon in the Bible refers to everything that is foul and pagan. The word means confusion. Most commentaries on the curses pronounced on Babylon in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 refer not only to ancient Babylon, but to the spiritual Babylon which exists today. In the book of Revelation, this mystery power is called Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. She is pictured as being drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus Christ. It is the vast, powerful, one world government called the New World Order by the conspirators that is being pushed by our political leaders today which will eventually make war with the Lamb and be destroyed. While Talmudic literature goes overboard in its praise of Babylon, it is a term of reproach in both the Old and New Testaments. 
It was during the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah that the priests discovered how the Torah, the Mosaic law, could be used as whited sepulchers to cover up the degeneracy of Babylon. Many of those Judahites became racially mixed with their captors and became a bastardized people. Both these racially mixed Jews and those who were racially still pure returned to Jerusalem. They deserted their temple worship for synagogues. They deserted their Levitical priesthood for that of the Pharisees. They left the true worship of their Hebrew forefathers and substituted the heathen ideology of Judaism. While in Babylonia, the seeds of world conquest were sown among the Judeans in Babylon. They intermingled with the heathen culture of Babylonia and became successful in the use of usury, which was forbidden under God's law. They changed the worship of the true God and adopted the heathen occult practices of the Babylonians. Some Christian leaders will be quick to point out that there was also a Palestinian Talmud which is not nearly as violent in its relationship to Christianity as the Babylonian Talmud. But the noted Jewish Rabbi Hertz said the Palestinian Talmud was, for many centuries, almost forgotten by Jewry. Its legal decisions were at no time deemed to possess the validity of the Babylonian Talmud. Hertz lauds the ancient Rabbi Akaba for being able to find a biblical basis for all the oral laws. Think about this. What an achievement. They took biblical laws, such as those forbidding sodomy, theft, passing children through the fires of Molech, and twisted them into oral laws which permitted these degenerate, ungodly acts. This is what brought destruction to the Judahites. This is Gnosticism, a system of belief which stresses salvation through an intuitive knowledge or recognition of right and wrong at its best. It has been defined as a system of merging the opposites and contradictory tenets of a system into accord. Yet Christ himself once said, Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew six twenty four. The modern Pharisees are masters of Gnosticism and are attempting to blend Christians, Jews, and heathen into one great brotherhood of man under their control. Of course, Christ was not fooled by the Gnosticism of the Pharisees of his day. He knew the Talmud allowed them to curse their parents as long as they did not use the Jewish four-letter word for Jehovah. He knew that the Pharisees taught that they could beat their parents as long as they did not draw blood. Both of these acts drew the death penalty under Mosaic law. God commanded Moses to instruct the priests not to marry a woman who had been a prostitute. But the Talmud contradicts this by saying that if a woman has had sex with her own son, if he is under the age of eight years and one day, she may marry a priest. And the noted Rabbi Hillel, who many Jews consider the sage of all Jewish sages, said, her son could be nine years old and it would still be okay. 
The Babylonian-born Hillel has been honored by having a Jewish college foundation named after him and by the Jewish Masonic Lodge of Benai Brith. Yet Hillel was one of the most putrid-minded of all the ancient sages, according to his own writings. Maybe this is why the Jews honor him so. They seem to revere filthy-minded individuals, as can be seen in Jewish comics. It is interesting to note that the Babylonian influence was so strong on Judaism that they adopted the Babylonian calendar. Many of the Jewish feasts and festivals are not from a Mosaic origin, but have come straight from the heathen observance of Babylonia. Isaiah 760-690 BC, the Israelite prophet, who was not Jewish, begins his book with accusations against Judah and Jerusalem. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, children that are corruptors. Isaiah 1.4 Bring no more vain oblations, sacrificial offerings. Brackets. The new moons and Sabbaths, and it is iniquity. Isaiah one thirteen. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. I am weary to bear them. Isaiah one fourteen. There are two new moon days celebrated monthly in the Jewish synagogue, and in Rabbi Joshua Trachenberg, who is listed in the Jewish Who's Who in America, states in his book Jewish Magic and Superstition, page two hundred fifty six. The pagan veneration of the new moon, which had by no means disappeared in biblical times, has no direct connection with the ceremony blessing, the new moon, which is outlined in the Talmud and is observed until this day. But certain superstitious practices are still associated with this rite, pointing to its continued occult importance in human affairs. In the first group are the practices of skipping three times at the close of the blessing and addressing the moon three times. The ceremony, as well as the threefold repetitions, are typical of magical acts. In the latter group are the practices of shaking one's clothes to cast out evil spirits and the belief that one who performs the full rite need not fear death during the ensuing months. The Feast of Tammuz celebrated by Jews from the 17th of Tammuz until the 9th of Ab, is a feast in honor of the Babylonian heathen goddess of prostitution. The worship of this heathen goddess was practiced during the Babylonian captivity and returned to Judea with them as another regular festival of this Babylonian synagogue of Satan. Another regular Babylonian festival is the New Year for trees. Tree worship is one of the oldest forms of paganism and is based on the belief that trees are inhabited by the spirit of fertility. In the Jewish Encyclopedia, 1905, is an article about this festival. It quotes from the Talmud, Gittin, 57a, on the Jewish custom of planting a cedar tree for every newborn male and a cypress tree for each female. When a marriage is about to take place, 
the trees were cut down and used as bedposts for the nuptial canopy. This same article relates how the Kabbalists, when they settled in Palestine in the 16th century, instituted the practice of eating fruits on that day instead of planting trees. The Christian reader may be perplexed by the biblical denunciation against trees until you realize that the Babylonians' fertility rites and the mass prostitution of Judean women were carried out under these trees which were planted in groves for this purpose. Two Judaic kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, were commended in the Bible because they cut down these groves. See 2 Kings 18.4 and 23.14 God promised his people in Egypt that he would bless them only as they drove the pagan abominators, the Canaanites, out of the land. Instead, the Israelites often intermarried with them in direct opposition to God's commands. Intermarriages of this type were taking place in Babylon among the captive Judahites and their captors. It became so obvious that God states that their very looks would be a testimony against them. In Exodus, we see where God tells Israel, But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Exodus 34.13 And in Deuteronomy 12.2-3 Ye shall utterly destroy all the places, wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, and under every green tree, And ye shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. The Judahites did not do this in Babylon. Instead, they joined in this heathen practice, and then brought it back into modern Judaism. Can you understand why the Apostle Paul said of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians 2.15? They please not God, and are contrary to all men. Since the Babylonian Talmudists acquired Old Palestine in 1948, Formal tree planting has taken place at a feverish rate with holiday tree planting events to honor various State of Israel personages. Thousands of these trees have been planted by brainwashed Christians who do not know the religious significance behind it. In view of the billions of dollars we have given the State of Israel, they even designated a forest which was to be planted in honor of the U.S. government. We will see more groves planted than Joshua and the prophets ever cut down. Following are two pages taken from an article in the Jewish Encyclopedia about Babylonia, which illustrates the devoted attitude modern-day Pharisees have towards Babylon, the source of their Talmud. Following the quotes from the Jewish Encyclopedia is an article taken from the Jewish newspaper, The American Hebrew, March 1, 1946, in which Rabbi Leon Spitz urges Jews to eliminate anti-Semites as their ancestors did. Keep in mind that 80% of the Jews today are not Semitic. After an interval of a few years, a nephew of the deposed Akba, David B. Zakel, 920-940, was made exilarch and Cohen Zedek II was forced to recognize him 
foiled as this ambitious Pumbetin. Pumbetin. Thus was in regard to the exilarchate. He was, in addition, compelled to witness the rise and development of the Academy of Sura, also strongly opposed by him, but which under Sadaya reached a point of unprecedented splendor. Sadaya, who had been called to Sura from Egypt because there was no scholar of sufficient Talmudic authority there, had already made himself famous by his translation of the Bible into Arabic and by his commentary upon it. His activity as Gaon of Sora, 928-942, was even more meritorious than this accomplishment. His battles with the Karaites form but one side of the general polemic activity which ruled at this time in Iraq, Iraq, among the pre Professors of the various religions, there was a Parsi controversy. Shikand Gumanik Vidar against Jews and Christians in the ninth century. Darmus Fer Reverend et Jubis XXVIII four Sabar Yeshu, a Jacobite. Presbyter of Mosul in the 10th century waged a discussion with a Jewish sage, Asamani, I see, I, 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 1541. Compare Stein Schneider, Polemischk, Literar, page 85, and Mohammedan. Writers like Al Kindi were continuous in their attacks from the 9th century on against Jews and Christians alike. Stein Schneider, I see, page 112. Two caliphs, Al Muqtadr and Kahir, interfered in the disputes between the Exilarchate and Gaunate, with the result that both institutions suffered influence. David had successfully maintained himself against his brother Joshua, whom Saida had declared Exilarch and had thereafter made friends with the Gaon who had, in the interval, been banished to Baghdad. He left his son Judah to succeed him, but he ruled only seven months. Saida then took affectionate charge of Judah's infant son, until the latter was slain in a Muslim riot. The exilarchate had to be suspended, about 940, until quieter times permitted its artificial revival. There are some faint traces that a certain Hezekiah, a grandson of David's son Judah, was exilarch for a time, but according to other authorities, he was only Gaon of Pumbedida, a post, which with his violent death in 1040 also passed away with an existence of 800 years. <sighs> The Academy of Pambadida flourished for a century longer. Aaron Ibn Sargedo, a wealthy merchant of Baghdad and the opponent of Seda, acted as Gaon of 
Pambadera, 943-960, and very effectively. Of less importance was Nehemiah, son of Cohen Zedek, but in Sherira, 968-1000, and his son Hai, or Haya, the Jews of Babylonia, possessed two incumbents of the Gaonate, who shed unrivaled brilliancy upon their office. Yet both these respected dignitaries found themselves the victims of calumnious representations made to the Caliph Al-Qadr, probably through the instrumentality of scholars who felt themselves slighted. The two Gionim were for a time imprisoned, but ultimately were set at liberty, and the now-aged Sharira resigned his office in favor of Hai, who discharged the duties of the Gaonate until 1038. Upon his death, the above-mentioned Hezekiah ruled for two years longer, and with his murder, the Gaonate of Pambadida came to an end. The Gaonate of Sura was extinguished less suddenly. About 970, a certain R. Jacob B. Mordecai is said to have written to the Jewish communities, on the Rhine, on the matter of a false messiah. Manheimer died Juden in Worms. Page 27. This is, however, considered to be a fabrication. The last Gaon of Surah was Samuel B. Hoffney, the father-in-law of High. He was distinguished for his literary activities when he died in 1034. The Gaonate of Surah retrograded more and more until at last it expired quite quietly and unnoticed. A special intervention of Providence, according to Ibn Dawd, was arranged in order that Babylonian learning should be transplanted to Europe. Four scholars sent to the West to gather funds for the academies were captured on the Mediterranean by an admiral of the Caliph of Cordova. And after many experiences, these four became the founders of rabbinical academies in Alexandria, Kerwan, Cordova, and perhaps Nerbone. Babylonia thus lost its central importance for Judaism. It was, however, replaced by the rising communities of Spain. Whether the two sons of the unfortunate Hezekiah above mentioned had also migrated. This forms an appropriate point at which to consider the general influence of Babylonia upon European Judaism. Luzeto Hebreshki Briefe, page 865, thus in substance describes it. The West received both the written and the oral law from Babylonia. Punctuation and accentuation were begun in Babylonia. So also the plyot, rhyme, and meter. Even philosophy had its origin here. For the frequently mentioned by little-known David Hababli, or Al-Mukamez, who lived before Sedaya, is the oldest known Jewish philosopher. The greatest, if not also the earliest, Payatan, Eliezer Kaler, 
of the 8th century was apparently a Babylonian. It is true, indeed, adds Luzato, that heresy is also a Babylonian product. For in addition to the Karaites, Hiwi al-Balki, Sadia's opponent was a Persian, in a broader sense, a Babylonian. The Talmudic usage survived for a long time of calling all Western Jews Ma'arbae, Palestinians, quote-unquote, and all Eastern Jews Madinhae, quote-unquote, Babylonians. One peculiarity of Babylonians, however, made no headway among the Jews of other lands. This was the system of supralinkal punctuation. See Pinsker Elutenung in Das Babylonisch Hebraica blah blah punctuation system called the Babylonian or Assyrian and said to have been invented by the Karate Araya of Iraq. See Margolioth in Proxoch Biblo Archaeology 1893 page 190 to Babylonian literary activity in addition to the Babylonian Talmud must be ascribed possibly the Targum Onkelos together with some Midrashic works Rabbot Halakha Gedolot and the well-known works bearing the names of the Gianim Aha of Shabha Amram, Sadia, Sharira, Hai, Hofni, and others. Babylonian learning, always great from Rab's time, expressed itself in independent works only toward the close, the close of the period and then disappeared altogether. Glamorous Purim formula. Exterminate anti-Semitic termites as our ancestors did. Excuse me. 2,500 years ago. The Purim Festival offers a formula to combat anti-Semitism. And no wonder, since it was during those Purim days, just about 2,500 years ago, that Jews lived for the first time in their history in Galuth, and it was then that Jews met the anti-Semite face-to-face and triumphed over him. To the question, how did he do it? A rereading of the book of Esther will afford the answer. No, there was no miracle about it at all. Fact is, the Purim festival is unique in this respect, that nothing supernatural is mentioned in its connection. It is also unique in that the name of God does not occur in the entire story. It presents just this one problem. The problem of anti-Semitism and affords a realistic solution which seems, seems to have a substantial amount of merit. And yet, it is this holiday about which poets have composed songs and ditties beginning with the medieval Shoshanat Yekob to Haman was a wicked man and in shoo 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 so popular in our American Sunday schools. It is this festival which has evoked not a few of the great masterpieces 
by the master painters of Christendom, which are exhibited in the finest national museums and galleries in many a European capital. These Purim paintings are to be found even among the priceless objects, de-art, which Goring and his hoodlums have looted and hidden away, now to be rediscovered one by one by American art experts. Purim launched the Yiddish theater with Esther as the charming heroine, Mordecai, the popular hero, and Haman, the villain, par excellence. In the sunny climates of Italy and southern France, Purim carnivals were in vogue, while in German and Hollandish synagogues, Haman was burnt in effigy and with unrestrained glee. To this very day, in a thousand synagogues, his name is hissed and mimicked on Megala night to the accompaniment of Haman clappers and every other variety of festive noisemaker. Dealing, as it does, with the most serious problem of Jewish life, the perennial curse of anti-Semitism, the festival, has yet become the merriest and the gayest in the Jewish calendar. The order of the day includes wine drinking, the Purim Siuda, or banquet, to top off the holiday, which has been launched on Megillah night by the public reading of the story of Esther. It by no means neglects the giving of charity to the poor, and it stresses the practice of shalak mones, or the exchange of presents among the relatives and friends. Every year, mark of festivity lends its bit of gaiety to make this the most glamorous of Jewish holidays. And so it goes. But why all this? For the very simple reason that the Purim festival spelled to every Jew of every generation the call to fight the good fight with a pretty definite assurance that victory and triumph were just right around the corner. The Purim story mirrored the precariousness and the uniqueness of Jewish life in exile. With all, it re-emphasizes the storybook formula that all's well that ends well, and every Jew lived happily ever after. In every way, Jewish life as lived in the Purim story mirrors Jewish life outside of Palestine in every age and epoch of Jewish history. Mordecai and Esther had Persian names. They spoke the language of the country of their adoption. They participated in the life about them. They attained posts of honor and of prestige. And simultaneously, they had their own organized Jewish life and they adhered to their faith and to their traditions. And then, anti-Semitism struck. The causes were the perennial causes. Jealousy, race hatred, the Jews were aliens. They were that greatest of unforgivable crimes. They were different. In the words of the Megillant Esther, their laws are diverse from those of every people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Haman, too, too alludes to the loot which would be poured into the royal treasury by confiscating Jewish property. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to bring it into the king's treasuries. There is, too, the genuine Hitlerian touch. Hitler, resentful of certain individual Jews, determined to revenge himself upon the entire Jewish nation. Likewise, Haman, in his day resented Mordecai and sought to massacre all the Jews. 
The Purim formula demands the following elements. Self-respect, unity, faith, courage, and sacrifice. Self-respect. The Megillah is crystal clear on this point. Mordecai, the Jew, did not kneel, nor did he prostrate. No matter what the price, his Jewish self-respect permitted no compromises. Unity. Esther's counsel to Mordecai was, Go forth and assemble all the Jews of Shushan. American Jewry must present a united front in combating its enemies. This is a first essential prerequisite before the ranks can be closed. It is a must technique, which every battle in human experience prescribes. Jews of every religious denomination and of every sort and manner of theoretical grouping the maximum and minimum Jews are duty-bound to keep well in mind Ben Franklin's revolutionary bon mot. If we don't hang together, we shall hang separately. Jews must learn to get along together and to embark on common action to achieve their goals and to protect their rights. Faith. People must have faith, both in its destiny and in its own power to achieve that destiny. Enlargement and deliverance will arise unto the Jews from another source. Sacrifice. Yes, there must be those who, more alive to the problems of Jewry and placed strategically where they can help their people, must be willing to render the needful service even to the point of personal sacrifice. Noblesse obligé. They who are endowed with health or prestige or influence or talent, with the ammunition that plays a determining role in a democracy, must be induced to make use of their ammunition in the protection of their fellow Jews. For in the security of the entire family of Israel is assured the peace and the security of every individual member of that family. And lastly, courage. The kind of courage that Mordecai and the Jews of Shushan displayed was to meet the enemy in physical combat. It was the kind of courage which the Allied soldier displayed when he met Nazi and Jap in battle. It was the kind of courage the flower of the Jewish youth of Palestine exhibits in its battle for free entry to Palestine. For too many thousand of years, the voice has been the voice of Jacob, and the hand was the hand of Esau, forever raised against his brother. Perhaps the time has come when rules should be changed. Let Esau whine and wail and protest to the civilized world, and let Jacob raise his hand to fight the good fight. For the anti-Semite has no morality, and he has no conscience. He understands but one language, and he must be dealt with on his own level. The Purim Jews stood up for their lives. American Jews, too, must come to grips with our contemporary anti-Semites. We must fill our jails with anti-Semitic gangsters. We must fill our insane asylums with anti-Semitic lunatics. We must combat every alien Jew-hater. We must harass and prosecute our Jew-baiters to the extreme limits of the laws. We must humble and shame our anti-Semitic hoodlums to such an extent that none will wish to dare become fellow travelers. When you read this article, remember that it is the story of a Jew by the name of Mordecai who deliberately prostituted his niece to the king in order to gain the king's favor. It is not a story about God's protection of these antichrists as our pastors would have us believe. 
Some of my Christian readers may ask, what was Babylonia's influence on Judaism in Europe? How did it affect European Jews? The answer is that the Jews in the East and West received both the written and oral law of Babylonia. It is still looked upon with deep reverence by religious Jews everywhere. It might be worthwhile to point out here that the vast majority of modern-day Jews are not religious at all, and many of them are declared atheists or agnostics. This is especially true in the state of Israel. While the Christian world, for the most part, abhors the concept of Babylon, world Jewry adores it. In some parts of the world, in Ethiopia for example, the Falasha Jews, black Jews, place the rabbis of Babylon first in their daily prayers. The existence of a spirit world inhabited with evil spirits is mentioned throughout the New Testament, and we find numerous incidents where Christ and his disciples drove out the possessing spirits. There is one hard, fast rule observed throughout the entire Bible when dealing with evil spirits, and that is to leave them alone. Do not try and invoke them. Call on them for help, or even attempt to communicate with them. The gangster elements of the spirit world will deceive the finite reasoning of human beings. If given a chance, so leave them alone. No horoscopes. No Ouija boards. No fortune telling. Where the Bible represents God as the supreme intelligence creator and ruler, the pagan and atheistic concept is that of pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that there is a great natural essence something that exists, about which the individual can know nothing. In pantheism, man is the big shot. The Bible prophesies that the Antichrist will be a personification of this nature. See Isaiah 14, 12-19, Daniel 11, 36-38, Matthew 24, 15, and Mark 13, 14. This idea was expressed by the German-Jewish philosopher Ludwig Furbach over 100 years ago when he said, Man will finally be truly free when he realizes there is no God of man but man himself. This idea took root in the diseased brain of a young Jewish radical named Karl Mordecai Marx and became the foundation of modern communism. The Kabbalah. No book on Zionism would be complete without mention of the Kabbalah. The Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, 1943, says of it, Although Palestine was the birthplace of Jewish mysticism, the land where the Kabbalah was conceived and in which it attained its greatest importance was Babylon. The Kabbalah is a library of Jewish literature based on magic, spiritism, and sheer pantheism. Rabbi Aaron Ben Samuel is credited with bringing these mysterious doctrines from Babylon to Italy about the middle of the 9th century AD. From there, it spread to most of the Christian countries of Europe. The word Kabbal, sometimes spelled Kabbalah, is Yiddish that means tradition. It is a compilation of the traditions of paganism brought back by the Jews on their return from Babylon. The Zohar, which complements the Talmud, and is called the Book of Splendor, has been translated into several large volumes and is more degenerate, if possible, than the Talmud itself. The world is explained by a chart 
which represents three copulating triads, a group of three persons, male, female, and offspring. The ENSOF, ENSOF, surrounding these is the God Essence, which percolates through these three back into itself. Give me 10 seconds, excuse me. The Jewish Encyclopedia, page 472, under the heading of Kabbalah, explains it like this. God is the infinite, unlimited being, to whom one can neither make or ascribe any attributes. Human, at, human attributes, meaning. Whatsoever, who can be merely described as ensof, without end, meaning. While the Talmud Kabbalah explains life as a series of blind emanations, the stooge of the Talmudists, the evolutionist Darwin explains life as self-development from matter, equally blind and without a chief engineer or designer. Karl Marx, in his Talmud formula for world power, calls this same Kabbalistic process dialectical materialism the very essence of Talmudic communism. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, the Kabbalah taught the exalted position of man, the true Jewish view of life, and one that appealed to Talmudic Judaism. The Jew is recognized in the Kabbalah, and it was the Kabbalists who developed Jewish magic, the casting of lots. Does that ring a bell at the crucifixion? Necromancy foretelling the future that communications with the dead. Exorcism, the formula used for the casting out of evil spirits, and astrology. These were all legitimized in Jewry, although the law of Moses demanded the death penalty for anyone who practiced them. Leviticus 20.27, Deuteronomy 18.10-12. The prophet Jeremiah foretold the destruction of this mighty Babylonian system, which now controls the world, Jeremiah 51, 63-64. And our Lord Jesus Christ added his own words in Revelation 18. Here we find that this world system is held accountable before God for the blood of the prophets, the saints, and all that were slain upon the earth. In Matthew 23, 31-35, as Christ faced the Pharisees eye to eye, he said to them, Ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send you the prophets, and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and persecute them from city to city, and upon you, brackets, the Pharisees, May come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Dot, dot, dot.
In this scathing manner, Christ linked the Pharisees of his time with the Babylonian red world power to come, in which he will ultimately destroy. A reading of the foolishness and utter blasphemy of the Talmud will throw new light on Christ's bitter denunciation of the Jewish leaders, of whom he said in Matthew 23-13-15, For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves. But Christ's bitter denunciation of the Pharisees reached even deeper than the Pharisees themselves. In Matthew 23:15, Christ clearly states that their converts become twofold more the child of hell than their convertors. This can be clearly seen in the attitude of the so-called Christian Zionists who are hell-bent on defending Zionism no matter how evil it may be. Men such as Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Jimmy Swagger, Jack Van Impey, to name a few. It can also be seen today in world affairs, where the prostituted converts of the great Pharisee banking industrial Khazars are key men who are often better fronts and more zealous than their masters in building up the red antichrist world. More and more, we see so-called Christian leaders enter the Zionist movement of world brotherhood, which is designed to destroy the Christian world. Jesus clearly warned us in Matthew 6.24, No man can serve two masters. Yet well-known Christian leaders such as those just mentioned give credence and honor to the enemies of Christ who are clearly defined in 1 John 22, uh, 1 John 2.22-23. Then they turn their backs on the admonition given in 2 John 10-11 and encourage their people to do the same. Here the Apostle John states that anyone who gives aid and comfort in any way to the Antichrists has become a partaker in their evil deeds. At the time, approximately 96 AD, when the Spirit of Christ prompted the Apostle John to write the book of Revelation, he had him mention the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews. Judeans, and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Revelations 2.9 and 3.9. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, the Jewish political party of the Sadducees disappeared and the Pharisees were in complete control of Judaism. In fact, the word Judaism is synonymous with Phariseeism. Whether these Jewish leaders were lineal descendants of Judah was not the issue. They had access to the word of God, but instead of adhering to it, they readily and eagerly adopted the pagan traditions of Babylon, which nullified the commandments of God. See Matthew 15, 3-9, and Mark 7, 5-9. The Apostle Paul made it clear over and over again that the promise of blessing to Abraham and his seed was to come, not through his bloodline, but through Christ. This is a lesson many identity Christians need to learn. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, Seeds! As of many, but as of one, which is Christ. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 16, 29. You may be of pure Abrahamic lineage. I sincerely doubt that any such man or woman exists. 
But you cannot enter the kingdom or obtain to the promises made to Abraham except through Jesus Christ. Maybe this truth is one of the reasons that some people in identity hate the Apostle Paul. In Esther 8.17, approximately 510 B.C., we learn that many people of the Persian Empire, which covered 127 provinces, stretching from the Indian to the Atlantic Ocean, became Jews for fear of the Jews. This did not mean that these thousands or possibly millions of people were descendants of the tribe of Judah. When Moses died, approximately 1451 B.C., Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, or Palestine as we know it today. God warned him to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, lest the sexual abominations of the Canaanites, who were descendants of the son of Ham, would cause Israel to sin. Genesis 10, 15-18. And 1 Chronicles 1, 13 through 16. A study of the books Joshua and Judges will reveal that instead of driving out these heathen abominators, the Israelites intermarried with them and adopted many of their abominable ways. This is why we find the prophets thundering their denunciations against both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Finally, 721 B.C., God in his wrath against the northern ten tribes, house of Israel, purposed that they be taken into captivity east of the Euphrates River by the Assyrians. For all intents and purposes, these people became lost to human history, but not to God. The consequences of the prophet's dire warnings against the southern kingdom of Judah finally took place between 600 and 586 B.C., these people, following in the footsteps of their brethren from the north, became even more evil in their works. They were taken captive into Babylon, all except the very poorest and basest of the people. Remember, most of this kingdom had been carried away by the Assyrians at the time of the northern invasion. Among those that were left, the cream of the crop was taken into Babylon. There were only approximately 49,000 who eventually made their way back to Palestine. Jacob later called Israel had 12 sons who fathered 12 tribes who became known as the children of Israel or Israelites. Three of these started their tribal history by marrying non-Israelite women. Judah married a Canaanite woman, a descendant of Ham, Genesis 38. His offspring were Hamatic as well as Semitic. 400 years later, around 1300 BC, his descendants, through his half Hamitic son, Shelah, were weavers and potters. 1 Chronicles 2 3 and 4 21 through 23. Simeon, another of Israel's founding fathers, married a Canaanite woman. Genesis 46 10. Egypt had been settled and peopled by the Mizraim, the descendants of Ham. It was known as the land of Ham. Numbers 12, 1. Psalm 78, 51. Psalm 105, 23. Psalm 106, 22. Contrary to public belief, these people were white. 
not black. Over and over again in monotonous repetition, we read in the books of Joshua and Judges how Israel triumphed over the Canaanites. Yet many Israelites disobeyed God by allowing the Canaanite gods to remain in the land, and eventually these Israelites intermarried with these captured peoples. In Numbers 33:55, we read Moses' warning to Israel. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Israel did not believe God then, and they paid the price for their disobedience. Modern Israel today, the white nations of Christendom, refuse to obey God and are suffering the same penalties for their disobedience. The sins of the northern kingdom of Israel were those of intermarriage with the Canaanites and the making of altars of sin. They began to follow after the abomination of those heathen people which God knew they would do if they allowed them to remain in the land. One of those sins was the offering of their children to the god Molech, just as we just as we, their offspring, are offering our unborn on the altars of legalized abortion. Ephraim, the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom, hath mixed himself among the people. Hosea 7, 8, and Hosea 8, 9 through 11. Isaiah called them the drunkards of Ephraim. Isaiah 28, 1 through 3. The charges against them were mixing with abominators and whoring under every green tree. Isaiah 57.5 and Deuteronomy 12.2. This hardly makes for regeneration of purity. It is exceedingly difficult to understand how the modern day Pharisees have convinced the Christian world that the Jews stem from a pure Judah-Israel stock since Christians have access to scriptural records which prove otherwise. In Christ's time, when the Pharisees boasted of being Abraham's children, he threw their boast back in their faces. Matthew 3, 7-10. John 8, 33-44. When the Jews of today say, We are the children of Abraham, and are therefore entitled to the land of Palestine, our answer should be, So what? Millions are. After all, God told Abraham that he would someday be the father of many nations. Genesis seventeen five. And that his descendants would be as the sand of the sea, many in number. Abraham did not father only the tribe of Judah, from whom the Jews, cl- Jews claimed to come. He had 16 offspring by his wife Keturah, from whom came the Midianites and hordes of Mideastern peoples. Through his son Ishmael, born of Hagar, He fathered twelve separate nations. However, the great promise to Abraham was Jesus the Christ, not the Jews. Furthermore, Moses was not a Jew. He was a Levite on both sides of his family. Exodus 2.1 Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not Jews. There were no people called Jews anywhere in the world until almost a thousand two years after the time of Abraham when they first appeared in 2 Kings 16.6, fighting with the king of Syria and the king of Israel against Ahaz, the king of Judah. To call Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Jews is a sign of ignorance at best, intellectual dishonesty at worst.
Only one tribe, tribe of Judah, has provided any possible ancestry to the people known as Jews. This would comprise only a tiny minority today since most modern-day Jews are Ashkenazim, who, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, are Turco-Mongolian by racial and family background and whose ancestors never set foot in Palestine, grabbing the entire Old Testament and claiming it to be their own, as the Pharisees do today, is false and misleading since the religious book they follow is the Babylonian Talmud, according to their own leaders. It is also false and degrading for Christians, whether in the denominational world among evangelicals or fundamentalists, or among the kingdom, identity people, to deny Christ's descent through Judah, as was prophetically foretold. Why do the Jews often look Jewish? The Jewish Encyclopedia, 1905, has a long article with charts and pictures which seeks to answer the question, Why is there a special look? So many self-styled Jews... Some of these Jews are blonde and blue-eyed, the encyclopedia says. What is popularly known as the Jewish type consists primarily in a peculiar expression of face, which is immediately and unmistakably recognized as Jewish in large numbers of cases. It has also been remarked that Jewish persons who do not have this expression in their youth acquire it more and more as they grow from middle to old age. There is seemingly some social quality not connected with race, which stamps the features of Jews as distinctly Jewish. The Anti-Defamation League of the Jewish Masonic Lodge, B'nai B'rith, published a series of leaflets for Jewish discussion groups. Leaflet number seven was entitled, Three Questions Jews Must Answer. Number one, are the Jews a race? Answer, Jews are part of a general admixture of races. Number two, are Jews a nation? Answer, Jews are parts of all nations. Number three, are Jews a religion? Answer, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews who are unbelievers, yet they consider themselves to be Jews. They need not fear to be represented by Judaism. On this, they may be sure Judaism will not misrepresent them. Phariseeism, Judaism, Talmudism teaches that only Jews are human beings. This is their basic law. We will see this later in one of the exhibits from the Talmud. Pharisaic Talmudic Brotherhood is actually atheistic communism, a world which has no nationalism except Talmudism. It is built on a satanic plan for world conquest known as Pax Judica. The final world of the Pharisees is bound for destruction. Malachi 1, 2-4 and Micah 4-4. Four, four. Where we read the final results when Jesus Christ, King of Kings, returns to this earth to rule over that which rightfully belongs to him, but which has been usurped by Satan through the disobedience of God's creation, man. When Christ returns, there will be no more prison collectives for the world tormentors, no more concentration camps, no more government political prisoners, no torture of Christians. 
When we observe the beautiful exterior of the whited sepulchres of Talmudic Phariseeism Judaism, and then look at their stinking interior which denies every teaching of the Bible, it is no wonder that Jewish institutes such as the Hillel Summer Institute seek to classify the twisted thinking of Jewish leaders. They ask the question, Is God necessary for morality? Their answer is peculiarly twisted Jewish logic. Quote, Since according to philosophy... God's existence cannot be proven. How then can a Jewish student, after being exposed to philosophical thought, get the necessary faith to believe in God? Unquote. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the gangster on the street, the prostitute, the pornographer, all acquire a certain look which was not evident when they were born. A glance, the photos of the who's who in Judaism reveal a predominance of that special Talmudic look which comes with long association with its filth and blasphemy. Isaiah 3.9 states it this way, The shoe of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. The Pharisees. This is taken from the Jewish Encyclopedia, straight from it, of Funk and Wagnalls Co., New York and London, 1905, page 619. 1. The Pharisees, interpreting the spirit of the law, acting under the elastic rule that there is a time to serve the Lord by relaxing his law. PS 126 Heber Yoma 69a Permitted the desecration of the Sabbath in besieging a Gentile city till it be subdued, quote-unquote. Deuteronomy XX20 In accordance with Shammai's interpretation, Shammai, 19a. This definition was not new, as already the Maccabeans had taken advantage of it in fighting the enemy unceasingly, putting aside the observance of the Sabbath for the sake of God and of their national existence. I mark I I forty three forty four, probably for the name for the same reason. To facilitate war with the Gentile enemy, the rabbis. Modify the laws of purification so as not to apply when one comes in contact with a corpse or human bones, or when one enters an enclosure containing a dead body, with regard to the text. Quote, this is the law when a man dieth in a tent. Unquote. Numbers XIX 14. They held that only Israelites are men. Quoting the prophet, Ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men. Unquote. Ezekiel XXXIV31. Gentiles, they class not as men, but as barbarians. BM108B. The Talmudic maxim is whoever has no purification laws cannot contaminate. Nez61B. 
Another reason assigned is that it would have been utterly impossible otherwise to communicate with Gentiles, especially in the post-exilic times. Rabbinal votes. Mebo Hatalmud, page 5, Wilna, 1894. Patriotism and a desire to regain a settlement in the Holy Land induced the rabbis in order not to delay the consummation of a transfer of property in Palestine from a Gentile to a Jew. It's taken from the Jewish Encyclopedia, 1905. Thank you all. That is the end of chapter 6. Reading of the Effects of the Talmud on Judeo-Christianity by Colonel Jack Moore, the saint who passed into glory. Uh, do share this on any platform as you wish. Freely re-upload. Do shout me out and subscribe. Appreciate it at Free Speech on Fire on BitChute and Telegram. Free Speech on Fire, BitChute, Telegram. Thanks a lot. Be blessed.